Well, good morning, church. How is everybody this morning? You doing well? Feeling rested? No, me either. All right, spring forward. I don't know who came up with that idea, but I don't like it. Uh, It's good to see you all. I'm glad that you made it this morning. Excited to worship and to celebrate uh, everything that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Before we get into our message this morning, I told you last week that I'd give you an update on uh, our approach as a church to some of these protocols and guidelines that we have in place for the virus. Uh, this conversation kind of reemerged when the governor uh, let the, the mandate for wearing masks uh, pass. And so a lot of uh, organizations and businesses have come together and churches and schools are having to say, okay, well, here's our, our update on our po- protocols and our pro- procedures and policies. And so uh, we told you last week we just needed to take some time to pray through it and talk through it as a staff. And uh, we sent an email out earlier in the week that really there are no significant changes for us up to this point. Uh, we're going to keep things the, the same for the time being, and uh, part of that is because we feel like things have worked well for us up to this point, and, and we just want to wait a little bit longer to see how things progress from here. I think we can all acknowledge there's plenty of reason to be optimistic and uh, hopeful about the trajectory that we're on, uh, not just in our country, but in our world. Uh, but for now, we're just going to kind of continue as is. And so Uh, Let me tell you, though, in light of this conversation, a few things that we will be looking for that could be triggers for when we change some of those protocols and procedures that we have in place and uh, when we're kind of anticipating some of those things might take place and then what it will actually look like in a post-pandemic world here at our church. And so let me just quickly hit on those a little bit this morning. When you think about what we're going to be evaluating to kind of determine when we might change some of the protocols or procedures. Obviously, there's a lot of data and numbers and uh, factors that often come into play. You, you hear a lot of things referenced in terms of number of cases, number of hospitalizations, number of deaths. That has been a consistent uh, data point really throughout the entire pandemic. It will continue to be one. But as we've seen in the last year, there's a lot of fluctuation with the virus, right? Those numbers can go up and they can go down and you go through peaks and then you kind of stabilizes, and then it goes back up again. And so it, it's not the only factor. Um, It is one factor, but it's not the only one. I think the newest factor that has really captured our attention and and really the world's attention is the vaccinations. Um, And as we see vaccinations get uh, a greater, uh, or I guess a greater prevalence in our society, then that will obviously impact people's ability to gather safely in groups and in crowds. And so we'll look at all those factors. It's not just any one factor. We'll look at all those factors. And as they begin to kind of stabilize and normalize and we can see a, a progression to safely gathering, then that's going to be some of the the things that will trigger our ability to evaluate our protocols and our procedures. When will that happen? We don't know. Uh, Let's be honest. We're just taking it a day at a time. And I I would encourage you, that's that's a great way to live anyway, because Jesus told you to do so, right? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. Take it one day at a time. But when we do uh, consider some of the, the conversations that are out there, it looks like a lot of uh, folks are hopeful that May is a time frame where more vaccinations will be available to the majority of the adult public in our country. Uh, you, ha- you hear conversations from the federal level about the 4th of July being a place where maybe people can start gathering safely in, in, in groups. And so we'll see if that happens. But <clears throat> for a staff, we're hearing things like that and we're thinking, okay, so beginning to mid-summer is a time where we might be able to start reevaluating some of these precautions and some of these measures. And so we're, we're kind of working towards that time frame in mind. There's a lot of discussion that needs to take place between now and then, but that could be a potential time frame. If you're not aware of this, summer schedules are always weird for churches anyway. 
And so uh, we always do things a little bit different during the summer months. And so I would say while we might be able to consider the, the beginning and middle of summer as a potential phase one to kind of reintegrating to some safe larger gatherings or whatever, uh, it's probably still going to be fall before we really can ramp up into some of what is, is what is typically viewed as a normal approach for a church, right? And then just the rhythm of the, of the calendar year. So those are kind of some general time frames that we're evaluating from our standpoint. Um, but the real question that I think a lot of folks are asking and that I would go ahead and, and share with you a little bit of this morning is, okay, what does church look like in a post-pandemic world? And uh, that's a great question, uh, one we're still trying to answer ourselves. Uh, here's what I know at this point. It's going to look different. And what I mean by that, it's going to look different than it does today, right, just by the sheer nature that we hope that we can safely gather in groups and indoors and all those other things. Uh, but it's also going to look different than what it was before the pandemic. And, and I say that because if you've been going through this past year thinking to yourself, man, I just can't wait till we get on the other side of it and everything gets to go back to normal, that's not gonna be our reality. Uh, so many things have changed for good in, in a good way. And, and part of the reason that's true for us is that our philosophy that we em embrace through this pandemic was we didn't wanna just try to buy time until the pandemic passed, right? Our approach was we wanna thrive and flourish as a church no matter our circumstances. And so we've been doing our best to make that a reality for us at this church. And in the process, while we have grieved over a lot of things that have been lost as a church, we've also discovered some really great things along the way. And, and so some of those things we've discovered we want to preserve and maintain in a post-pandemic world and also infuse back into the mix some of the things that we have been missing and that we've lacked. And so the result of that combination is going to be something different from either experience, either pre-pandemic or during pandemic. And so it's going to look different. Um, and so I would just in invite you to join us in those expectations, right? It's going to look different. There are several things that we're still evaluating um, and, and how it'll look different on Sunday morning, how it's going to look different through the weeks. And, and as we get some greater clarity on those things and have better uh, pictures of what exactly to expect, we're going to share those with you. We want your feedback, your input as well. Uh, but, but that's definitely a piece of it. Now, one of the things I'll also offer is that through the midst of it all, we've discovered the value of having online virtual uh, capabilities for those that can't be with us in person. We want to continue to provide that. That's not going away anytime soon uh, either. And, and so here's the good thing. Isn't it just good that we're having the conversation? Like, can we just stop and say, praise God, right, that we're having the conversation, uh, that there is a trajectory of optimism and hope when so much of this past year, it has not been that way. And so just, we covet your prayers and we covet your, your uh, insight and just your, your opportunities to pray for us for wisdom. And so we'll continue to have the conversation as we feel it's appropriate. Sound good? Okay, uh, that being said, let's get started on today's message and continuing this series on the different names of Jesus. I'm curious, who were some of your favorite teachers growing up? I mean, you, got, you got names in mind? You got... Uh, Famous, not famous, well-known people in your life that you can think back on and uh, be that in elementary school or junior high, high school, college, grad school. I'm sure we all have teachers that we just really loved. Uh, I know I could go through uh, every phase of my academic experience. I could talk to you about Mrs. Dow from my first grade year and how she just helped me fall in love with school and, and helped me understand when to be the class clown and when to not be the class clown and to rein that in. Uh, Mrs. Rankin in fourth grade reading our class, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
And that first time I really got introduced to Narnia and just like loved it. Uh, junior high, Mrs. White, uh, my, my speech teacher in seventh grade was where I fell in love with speech, not knowing that it would lead to so much of what I would do later in life. Uh, high school, uh, I have, uh, it would be silly for me to not mention Mr. and Mrs. Townsend who are members of our church. That was a great first day when they came to visit and I was like, oh my gosh, two of my high school teachers are out in the congregation. And I had Mrs. Townsend for Spanish and Mr. Townsend for history. I'll never forget the first day of class, Mr. Townsend standing up there talking about how his number one love was for his Jesus and how cool that was to hear as a student. Dr. Fears in college was easily one of the best orators I've ever seen. I mean, I could watch an auditorium filled with 200 to 300 college students literally on the edge of their seats as he would bring ancient Rome and ancient Greece back to life. I mean, he was just phenomenal. So we all have list of names probably. And, and, and just as we have the good names that we remember, we probably have other stories of names I won't mention today of teachers we didn't like for various reasons. And, and the reason we have that list is because teachers have a profound impact on us, right? We all have that list. And in fact, uh, Amanda Ripley wrote an article for The Atlantic a couple years ago and, and captured this really well. She said, more than any other variable in education, more than schools or curriculum, Teachers matter. Parents have always worried about where to send their children to school, but the school, statistically speaking, does not matter as much as which adult stands in front of their children, right? We, we have all seen that more than anything, the person that stands in front of us as a teacher has a significant impact on us in one way or another. And, and yet at the same time, we know that that influence goes well beyond the classroom because if I were to tell you who my most influential teacher has been in my life, it'd be my mom who ironically is a teacher, was a teacher. She taught for more than 28 years as a seventh grade reading teacher, brought home so many great stories about junior high education that entertained us around the dinner table. But, but more than that, she just taught my sister and me, right? All, all, all these different things about life. She'd read to us, she'd teach us work ethic, she'd teach us so many different aspects. And as now I've entered into adulthood, I've been reintroduced to one of her favorite quotes, which was, 95% of education is done in the home, right? And so what, what that tells us, and the reason I mention that is because our vision of teachers tends to start with who we see in a classroom, but in reality, when we think about life in general, it goes well beyond that, right? It's people that we have at home. It is mom and dad or brother and sister, people that we meet out in the real world at work. We have so many different examples of people who teach us various things, and so I wanted you to get your brain thinking about those relationships and those people and, and the nature of that relationship because I think those images and those memories will help introduce us to the significance of seeing Jesus as a teacher and how important that is. So turn to Matthew 7, all right? And, and it was actually difficult figuring out where to land for this conversation today because teacher, and especially seeing Jesus as a teacher, is saturated through the New Testament. More than 58 times uh, that word teacher is used in the New Testament, 48 of those times it occurs in the Gospels. And of those Gospel occurrences of the word teacher, 41 of those 48 are in direct reference to Jesus. So it's an undeniable biblical idea that Jesus is teacher. That is a definitive role that he carries. And the words that we typically see uh, uh, used in the New Testament to describe this role would be rabbi. If you read your uh, Lenten devotional last night, that's the, the title that's used in the devotional. Janae did a great job 
providing a creative poem to kind of bring that to life. Uh, But rabbi is synonymous with this other word, teacher. Rabbi carries a certain uh, respect to the person that holds the position. It was a a term of respect. Uh, Teacher was one who was an instructor who was focused on developing his students, his or her students, right? It was was all about that teacher-student relationship and role. And, And so you have numerous examples in the New Testament where Jesus satisfies this role and, and fulfills this terminology. And so I was kind of evaluating, well, where do you go to try to bring this to life for our discussion on Sunday morning? And I just kept coming back to one of the most well-known elements of, or passages of Jesus' teaching, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Probably more than any other a section of Scripture when it comes to his teachings, you have the Sermon on the Mount as being the most often quoted and referenced for so many of the different principles and values that he affords and offers us to learn. And, and Matthew gives this, this passage tremendous significance as well. I've, I've taught on it before. We did a series on the Sermon on the Mount several years ago. And if you remember, uh, the way that even this passage is introduced in chapter 5, Matthew is kind of making this comparison to Moses, right? In the same way that Moses came with tremendous teachings down from the mountain. Here's Jesus up on a mountainside. Mountains play a critical uh, role in Matthew's gospel, Jesus sits down, which was the position that one would actually take when they taught uh, back in those days. And so it sets the tone in Matthew 5. And then you read through the next three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, some incredible teachings where Jesus covers an array of topics. We get the Beatitudes. We get salt and light. We get teachings on adultery, divorce, murder, giving, prayer, fasting, uh, the wise and foolish builders, like, like so many different subjects and topics that Jesus hits on. And so it's a, it's a great portrayal of Jesus in his element as teacher, right? And, and so I, I say that as context for us to then look at verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7 that gives us the response that the people had to Jesus as a teacher. So we just have these two verses today that we're going to look at. Uh, Follow along with me in chapter 7, verse 28. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I love it. Simple. And it actually is almost verbatim uh, a a similar verse that you would find in the uh, first, first chapter of Mark, the fourth chapter of Luke. We have numerous references throughout the Gospels that show us that people were amazed at the teachings of Jesus. That, that's the fundamental response to Jesus' as teacher. They were amazed. Another way to say that is they were overwhelmed by his teachings. Are you? Like, are you genuinely amazed at the teachings of Jesus? Do they overwhelm you? Why or why not? And if they do, what is it about them that you find amazing? If they don't, why, why don't you find yourself being overwhelmed by his teachings? I think that's where we kind of have to begin the conversations. How do we typically respond to Jesus as teacher? Do we match the response of what we see portrayed in the gospel? I think one of the inhibitors for, for our amazement, or a couple inhibitors for our amazement of Jesus as teacher, is on some level we, we had the tendency to take them for granted. Right? Rightfully so, and justifiably so, we kind of zero in on the cross and the resurrection. Right? I mean, that, that's ultimately 
the essence of the gospel. And, and we become so fixated on the cross and the resurrection. Again, that, that is the climactic part of Jesus's uh, ministry and the gospel. But it can sometimes so overshadow the teachings that we don't spend the appropriate time reflecting upon all that he has taught and seeing him as a teacher. We, we love Jesus, Savior, Savior, Messiah, but do we actually stop and go, but he's also teacher. So sometimes we can just take him for granted. I think another problem that we have is that in our culture today, in our, our kind of American expression of Christianity, is that a lot of times we, we try to dress up Jesus and his teachings, right? One of the greatest fears that somewhere kind of got embedded in church leadership over the last several decades was that you guys would come to church and be bored. And so we decided to kind of create church to cater to your convenience and your ability to consume. And so we, we found pastors that were funny and witty and, and we dressed up the service with awesome videos and bells and whistles and in small groups we'd play games and icebreakers and we would entertain the heck out of you because we're worried that maybe you'll find Jesus boring. And that was a disservice, not just to you, but to Jesus. Right? Because what do we see in this passage? Why were they amazed at his teaching? Right? How does it read? They were amazed at his teaching because Jesus was funny. Man, his stories were hilarious. Man, there on the Sermon on the Mount, he broke everybody up and had them doing the coolest icebreakers ever. Why were they amazed? Because of his authority. That's really where this conversation goes. Right? The, the reality is, is that if we have maybe a, an inability to be amazed at the teachings of Jesus, it's probably an authority issue more than it is anything else. Right? And, and that if we are appropriately amazed at his teachings, it's because we have a correct view of his authority in our lives. So to really have this conversation today, we have to talk about authority. They were amazed at his teaching because of his authority. He did not teach like one of the teachers of the law. He was different. What was that distinction that was so apparent to them at this point in time? What was so apparent was that the teachers of the law in, in Jesus' day, they were well-trained, they were, they were well-versed, they had all this knowledge of, of God's law, the Torah, and all these different things, but they would build their credibility and their authority based upon whoever did their training and the traditions they received. Right, so they were constantly standing upon the authority of people who had gone before them. Right? Ancestors and, and previous people, previous teachers, they were constantly relying upon the authority of others. Jesus comes along, and what makes this, this teaching so remarkable, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, is not just the content, but the manner in which it's delivered. Because what does he say repeatedly throughout the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, you've seen it written. But I say, that was different. Time and time again, Jesus redirects the authority above tradition, above previous trainings, even in many respects above the Torah itself, and says all authority ends and begins with me. <laughs> that was different. And the fact that he did that, the only way that you can really justify that approach is to say that he saw himself as the Christ. He believed he had that authority, that he carried that authority, and so it set him apart. And so when we think about Jesus as teacher, it really is a question of his authority in your life. 
And have you given him that sort of authority? I think a lot of times we'll say yes, especially on Sunday morning at church when we're being asked. But when we live out our lives, it's a lot harder to maintain that sort of view of Jesus' authority. So my follow-up question is, what are some other teachers in your life that perhaps you've entrusted a level of authority to, right? That's the kind of the nature of the teacher-student relationship. I'm giving you authority to speak into my life. And so what are, what are some of those teachers for you? Right, who else is teaching you about life these days? We, we've got a lot of good influences in our lives, right? We do have uh, friends. We've got family members. Maybe there's a colleague at work. There's a mentor that you have in your life. We have cultural influences that teach us, like the media, uh, politicians, sports figures, right? role models. We have all these different areas of life, of influence, where we give people a certain level of authority to speak into our lives and to teach us. Here's the challenge, though. When you really begin to ask, who have I given true authority to, you best are able to answer that question when you see conflicting lessons. Because when we have all these different teachers and different influences, which I would say is healthy, right? It's good to have different voices speak into our lives. At some point or another, they're going to come into conflict with one another, aren't they? Right? And what you hear at home is going to be different than what you hear at school. And what you hear at church is going to be different than what you hear from a friend. And what you hear on the news is going to be different than what you hear at work, right? I mean, time and time again, you're going to have all these different voices that teach conflicting lessons. So who do you trust? What answer do you believe? And however you manage those conflicts is going to really be what reveals your ultimate sense of who has authority over your life. And so the the challenge for us is that more often than not, when we get into trouble, is we give too much authority to the wrong person or the wrong things. And that's when our life gets misdirected. Placing too much authority in the wrong hands of someone else or something else can often be incredibly destructive. And so the question you have to ask yourselves is, am I giving Jesus that ultimate authority? What's really shaping your life right now? Your worldview. Is the media shaping your view of this world? More than anything else, is that the voice you're trusting? Is it a friend group that's constantly telling you to live this way, think this way, do these things? Is it the pressure of culture? Like, what's really influencing you and what you actually believe? Have you really given that sort of authority and trust to Jesus? And that, that's the question that we have to answer on a day like today. Because here's what will happen. Is we'll, we'll trust a lot of these different influences and we'll fall victim to them, but if I were to, to make, make a suggestion to you this morning about which one we tend to uh, misplace the authority in more than any other, right? If there was ever a teacher or a voice of influence and authority that we tend to, to uh, listen to more than we probably should, it's not the media, it's not friends, it's not parents, it's actually ourselves. That's, that's typically what happens, right? We, we want to be our own authority. We want to have our own voice. And so what that does is that allows us to pick and choose from all these voices of teachers and influence that exist in our lives. And we can take what we want from the media. We can take what we want from church. We can take what we want from the Bible. We can take what we want from parents. And we can use all of it really just to affirm what we think we already know. And when that happens, we're no longer being taught. We're no longer learners. 
We're actually trying to just elevate ourselves to that teacher status so that we can maintain that authority. This is the problem in the garden, isn't it? If you think about the, the story in the garden and the serpent's great temptation, it really is a temptation towards authority. Right? The, the initial question, did God really say? Right? The serpent comes in and gets Adam and Eve to question, well, what did God actually say? That's not a terrible thing. It's good to ask ourselves, well, what did God say? That, that can be a healthy question, right? The question is, is, what do you do once you start to ask yourself those things? Once you go and consult the scriptures, once you go and see what God actually said, how do you respond to it? See, what, what shifted in the temptation is when the serpent got them to rethink about authority, right? And the, the follow-up to that deception was, no, 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 you won't die. You'll be like God. And that was the shift. You get authority. You get to decide what's right and wrong for yourself. And that is where we love to be. And so we will. We'll, we'll look at Jesus' teachings. We'll pick and choose. Because that keeps authority in our hands and out of his. And it's incredibly destructive. It's right where the serpent wants us to be. And so what we have to do is to guard against those temptations and acknowledge the ultimate authority that Jesus has in our lives. So here's a good way to try to evaluate that for yourself, right? The, the best way I know how to kind of guide that sort of introspection today is to ask you, what is your view of God's word, right? Like, like if we're gonna acknowledge that all the teachings of Jesus are ultimately preserved in this sacred text, what's your view of the scripture? Is it authoritative in your life? Is it just a, a guidebook, something to consult from time to time, or is it authoritative? Like, do you see that authority playing itself out in your life? That's the question that I think often allows us to come back and discover the authority that Jesus should have, is our, our view and our role with Scripture. Right? Now, here's the challenge. The challenge is, is that that's easier said than done, right? Because the reality is that it's a confusing book at times. And when we begin to look around, people have a lot of different views and interpretations of what things mean inside this book. And so then we start asking ourselves, well, who do we trust? How do we know? How, how do you know that what I'm telling you is true? How do you know? The fact that you're coming in here and listening to me talk every week tells me you're giving me some level of authority, right? But how do you know I'm not abusing it? Lord knows many people have stood on platforms like this one and abused that authority led people astray. It's not just people that stand on a platform, it's people that sit in pews, that you'll go hang out with, that you'll be in different small groups with, right? Man, they can lead you astray with that misuse of authority, right? And it's not just within these walls, it's beyond them. How do you know that what's being said about this book is true? That, this is where I really kind of wanted to, to navigate our discussion, Right, that if we're gonna see Jesus as teacher, we have to see his words as authoritative. And to see his words as authoritative means what is my relationship with the scripture? And so let me give you some suggestions, okay, in order for us to, to have a clear sense of what Jesus, is, Jesus has taught and how do we guard ourselves against being misled by the authority that we would place in the wrong hands of other people or even of ourselves. Okay, let me give you some practical tools. Number one, read the Bible. Let me state the obvious, read it. Like there's no substitute for that. I don't know, I can't, I mean like that's it. You have to read it. 
Because one of the things that should be happening every Sunday is that when I say something, you should be thinking, man, is that actually in Scripture? Can he back that up with a verse? And, and the more you read it, the more you're going to catch, oh, that was, that was a shout out to Romans 8 or 1 Peter 5. Yeah, okay, I know. Like, read it. Anytime you hear anybody teaching anything about Jesus, confirm that it's in Scripture. Read the Scriptures. A couple other things I would tell you, uh, encourage you to do. Value expertise and tradition. Okay? Value expertise and tradition. I'm not saying just take it blindly because everything should be measured against Scripture. But, but let's be honest. You and I are coming thousands of years after of Jesus. And there have been many men and women much smarter than you and me giving up a far greater cost than you and I will ever have to pay to preserve the teachings of Jesus. And to think that we can somehow magically arrive thousands of years later with better and clearer interpretations of this than those who went before us is incredibly arrogant. Value expertise, value tradition. Measure those things against scripture. Sure, we've gotten things wrong through the course of church history, of course. But you don't just dismiss it. Right? You value it and you measure it against Scripture, which ultimately leads to one of the main things that we need to do to maintain Jesus' authority as a teacher in our life, which is maintain humility. Right? Let the text speak to us. Acknowledge that we don't know everything. Here are the things that you need to be uh, cautious against when somebody is, is claiming the teachings of Scripture and the authority of Jesus. I would be wary of anyone that claims special, unique revela uh, revelations over and above the authority of Scripture. Like, like for sure, God reveals things in dreams and visions and in our prayer life and all that other stuff. But as soon as we begin to think that those things are more authoritative than Scripture, that becomes problematic, especially if those things are in contradiction to Scripture. Be wary of, of those thoughts that you may have in your life or those times that you hear those being taught by others. Right? I'd be wary about anybody that takes Scripture out of context. How am I going to know if it's out of context? Read it. Right, if a verse is referenced, go, I should go back and read where that verse is and see how that verse makes sense to that paragraph and how that paragraph makes sense to that chapter and how that chapter makes sense to that book. Read it. Be wary if it's taken out of context. You know that's one of the devil's favorite tools. That's how the devil tempted Jesus numerous times. Right, he used scripture. And how did Jesus counter? He put it in context. Right, be wary of people that try to use the Bible or claim the Bible as something that it isn't. Okay, Probably the most uh, common example for this is, is we try to constantly compete the scripture with science, right? Well, you know, if you go with the Bible, then you're just against science. Let me just go ahead and clarify. The Bible's not a science book, right? Like, it was never intended to be. Those things are not in conflict with one another. If anything, they complement one another. So be wary of those that try to make the Bible be something it isn't, right? See it for what it is. Right? Be cautious against, this is one in particular that I think is really important for us today. Be cautious against cancel culture. That's really the threat today. If I adhere to the authority of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, it may cost me dearly in culture. It could cost me my job. It could cost me uh, popularity, positive views, whatever it may be. And so because of louder voices, and intimidation, man, I'm gonna surrender those things. Can I just tell you something? Man, people have always had to give an account and a cost for following Jesus. That's not new. 
So don't, don't surrender the authority of Scripture out of fear and intimidation of culture, right? When you do that, who are you giving authority to? You're not giving authority to Jesus. You're giving authority to culture, right? So we have to, to embrace the teachings of Jesus, the Word of God, and give it its a proper authority in our lives. Here's what this all comes down to for me, is that at the end of the day, in order to see Jesus as teacher, we need to truly embrace the role that we're learners, <laughs> right? You never surrender that identity. To be a disciple is to be a pupil, to be a student. It means you never stop learning. Do you see yourself as a learner? What type of learner do you see yourself as? That, that might be the better question. Some of you may hate the idea of learning, right? You're like, man, I've been through school. I ain't, uh-uh. Like, I've got it all figured out now. I don't like learning. Others of you, man, some people, they just love learning. They can't get enough. They're constantly reading, constantly trying to consume information. But in order for us to truly, really have a healthy conversation about Jesus being a teacher, it also requires us to, to see ourselves appropriately as learners and to thirst for knowledge, to thirst for his teachings, to desire him to have that authority over our lives. Once we've given him that authority, man, thirst for it. Don't take it for granted. Dive into it and let him mold you and teach you and shape you in profound ways, right? And so let me give you some suggestions on what that might look like. I really kind of wanted to try to dive into the practical uh, this morning and to really try to explore how do we do that? How do we continue to, to learn the things that Jesus wants us to learn? How do we continue to, to have a consistent view of him as teacher and with that authority in our lives? And I came across this, this article that I thought was really, really well said. It was a, a guy by the name of Ulrich Bozer who wrote for the Harvard Business Review. And, and I love the way he set the tone for this article. Let me read this, these opening lines and then he gives us three suggestions that I wanna kind of weave into today. He says, many people mistakenly believe that the ability to learn is a matter of intelligence. For them, learning is an immutable trait like eye color, simply luck of the genetic draw. People are born learners or they're not, the thinking goes. So why bother getting better at it? But a growing body of research is making it clear that learners are made, not born. Through the deliberate use of practice and dedicated strategies to improve our ability to learn, we can all develop expertise faster and more effectively. In short, we can all get better at getting better. I love his premise here, right, if you're following. It's not just enough to say, well, I wanna get better. It's actually, I wanna get better at getting better. I, I wanna become a better learner. And that that's something that you can actually cultivate, right? And so some of you may be sitting there going, look, I just am not you know, prone this way. I'm just not inclined towards learning and understanding and seeing Jesus as a teacher. I just wanna be blind faith or whatever. But the reality is, is that you can truly become a better student and a better follower of Jesus by the ability to approach your role as a learner and seeing Jesus as a teacher, right? And so here, here are some practical things to do that, that are covered in this article that I think can infuse well into our discussion. The, the first thing that I, I was thinking of is think about all the different learning styles that exist, right? You, you're familiar with these, right? People learn and tend to have a favorite learning style. You could be a visual learner, auditory learner, uh, kinetic learner or, or reading and writing, right? Those, those are kind of some of the main categories. And so what I would say is that if we know this is true in education, then infuse that in your faith, right? So the, the visual learners love the charts, they love the maps, they love the graphs, it just brings things to life. Think about all the things that God shows you. 
and the way you can infuse that into your ability to learn Jesus' authority. Everything you see in a given day, do you see it through the lens of Jesus teaching you? Right, so when you see somebody hungry and hurting, when you see a family gathering together, when you see an opportunity to go and serve, do you recognize those moments as Jesus teaching you about his authority? When you see the moon and the stars and trees and all of creation, are you letting those things teach you by what you're seeing? Auditory, those that like to listen, men, listen to God. Listen to the songs that you're singing. Listen to scriptures that are being read over you. Listen to the prayers of brothers and sisters and just listen to the spirit of the living God. Kinetic learners, those are the ones that love to learn by experience. Man, go and do, right? There is no substitute for experience. You can read about loving your neighbor and then you can actually go love your neighbor. And the second one will be a tremendous educator on what that actually looks like. Right, get, go and actually serve, go and actually advocate for uh, uh, the justice and the, those that need to be set free from oppression. Go and actually help people that are going through recovery. Go and actually feed the hungry. Don't just read about it, right? Go and do. Reading and writing, we already talked about it. Read the scriptures over and over and over again. Become a modern day psalmist. Write out your thoughts, write out your prayers. All those things help you learn uh, who Jesus is and helps establish his authority and his role in your life as a teacher, right? So understand those learning types. What, what Bozer brings to light is he gives us some very specific examples of how we can improve our ability to learn when we do these things. The first thing he says is organize your goals, right? Look, look at how he describes it. This is a really well thought out point in my estimation. He says, it often boils down to project management. We have to set achievable goals about what we learn. Then we have to develop strategies to help us reach these goals. We are more committed if we develop a plan with clear objectives. The research is overwhelming. Studies consistently show that people with clear goals outperform people with vague aspirations. One of the problems we have in seeing Jesus as teacher and our role as disciples and learners is that we tend to just gravitate towards vague aspirations. I just wanna be better. Man, be, be clear in your goals. What is God actually asking you to do? Come up with clear goals, right? He, he wants me to work on my anger. He wants me to work on generosity, right? He wants me to work on service, right? Come up with specific goals and then don't confuse strategies for goals, right? One of the things that we often do in church, and, and I kind of got to be careful with this because it's not that it's a bad, bad goal. It's just that it doesn't necessarily go far enough. But a lot of times, like a goal that we'll have is, and I did this last year, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. That's a good goal. But I would submit to you today that it's actually more of a strategy than it is a goal. Right? A better goal would be I'm going to live the Bible for a year. And my strategy to do that is to read it. Right? So I'm going to go figure out how to, to fight for the orphan and care for the widow and be bold in my conversations. And as I read the scriptures, that's my strategy to fulfill that goal. That's the better goal. Right, so don't confuse strategies for goals, but organize your goals. Get specific in what God is trying to teach you. Here's the second one. Think about thinking. Be more inspective about how you know what you know. It's a matter of asking questions like, do I really get this idea? Could I explain it to a friend? Do I need more background knowledge? Do I need more practice? The key when it comes to learning is that people don't really engage this process enough. They don't stop to ask themselves if they really get a skill or a concept. 
I love this one because I've fallen into this trap all the time. When I've thought about reading scripture before, I'll come up with a plan and I'll be like, I'm gonna read a chapter a day and that's my goal. And man, I will read a chapter and I'll close that book and I'll set it down and I will have no clue what I just read. I won't think about what I'm actually learning. Right? And I'll just go through the routine thinking that I'm actually growing because I read my Bible, I read my chapter today, but I didn't actually listen to anything that was being said to me. And so through the years, I've, I've shifted that approach to where now when I hear a verse or I read a verse and it hits me, I stop and I immediately pray, Lord, what are you trying to show me? And I think about what he's teaching me. Or if there's a new concept, I really try to reflect upon it. I meditate on the word of the Lord, of the word of the Lord regularly to try to see how it's supposed to change my life. More often than not, we don't actually stop to think about the things that we're learning. And I love those questions that, that Bozer presents in this article, right? Could I actually teach it to a friend? That's a great example of, of a litmus test to say, I actually grasp what I've been taught here by Christ. One of my favorite examples of this, and you guys have heard me harp on this before, is sharing the gospel, right? Like, it, it's undeniable in my estimation that Jesus wants us has commissioned and commanded us to share the gospel. So if that makes you uncomfortable, your issue is not with me, it's with Jesus. Right? I didn't come up with it, but it's clear as day in Matthew 28. Like we as, as followers of Jesus should be able to share the gospel. Can you? Like do you know how to say it? You know what it means? Like that's a great example. Have you thought enough about what the gospel is and what it means to you that you can explain it to a friend? Think about your thinking. Third one, reflect on your learning. Sometimes we need to step away from a problem to understand a problem. For example, you get into an argument and then you think uh, of all the perfect things to say later in the day when washing the dishes. The main point is that learning benefits from reflection. I loved this example. How many of y'all have ever been in that situation where you do, you get in an argument and like two hours later, you're like, that's what I should have said, right? Like, I mean, I've been there so many times. That is a clear example of how our brains benefit from reflection. It's how we learn. And so when God is teaching you, let's say you, you, you're in his word and you're submitting to his authority and you're, you're getting clear specific goals and you're thinking about them, then stop and reflect. And what I think that means practically is like carve out time, take several days, go on a retreat, spend some time in prayer and reflection and just think about it. God's stirring your heart towards adoption. He's stirring your heart towards mission. He's stirring your heart towards, towards your marriage, towards parenting. My, like, take the time to stop and reflect. We live in a culture that is constantly saying, go, go, go. Thankfully, the pandemic, that's been one of the benefits is that it stopped all of that and we had a chance to really reflect. Don't lose that. That's why God gives you a Sabbath. <laughs> Rest, reflect upon what he is teaching you. That is something I've tried to carve out in my own life. I've encouraged our staff to do it. I would encourage you to do it. Take that time to reflect on what he's teaching you. Here's, here's the last thing, and then we'll be done. Uh, this one is not in the article, uh, but this is the one that I would offer to you today when it comes to seeing Jesus as teacher and the way to grow as learners. Enjoy the ride. Like, enjoy the mystery. Enjoy being a student. Enjoy the process of learning. Right? Enjoy the fact that we come to behold the mystery of all mysteries. And you will never graduate. 
right? You'll never get beyond that identity. There, there is so much to learn, so much to behold. Enjoy it. Let, it. let it be something that thrives within you, that thirst for knowing Jesus, that desire for him to speak into your life. Don't feel like you have to have everything figured out and all of it known and all the certainty. Enjoy the mystery. Enjoy the journey of faith because scripture is clear. He has set eternity in our hearts, but we cannot fathom what he has done. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him. Aren't we glad? We get to forever embark upon knowing and submitting to the authority of Jesus. Enjoy it. And let your life become a prayerful declaration where we constantly come before the Father and say, Lord, teach us your ways. Let's let that be our prayer and our identity today and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us the opportunity to learn from you. Father, that we can see Jesus as, yes, son of God, as servant, as savior, as Messiah, but also our teacher. May we never take his teaching for granted. And may we submit to it each and every day with a thirst and a hunger that changes us and helps us share the hope and the truth of Jesus with everyone we meet. We thank you for this time. We commit it all to you and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.